This is God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, 
I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us the book of Genesis. Thank you for um, just the truth that is packed in here, truth that, we, that we're not going to be able to cover uh, today. Um, and there's just so much here, Father, that you've given to us um, that reminds us of your grace and mercy to us as your people, that you have given us a beginning, and that beginning starts with you, and it ends with you as well. And so, God, we pray that you would continue just to teach us uh, as we begin this new study in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So one of my, uh, one of my favorite novelists uh, uh, was, before he died, uh, was an atheist rabbi philosopher uh, named Haim Podok. So very specific reading genre, I know. But uh, in 1975, he wrote uh, a novel entitled In the Beginning. And it's the first line, the first, very first sentence of the first chapter of this novel that has always uh, stuck with me. And it's this line. All beginnings are hard. All beginnings are hard. I've even quoted this line to my kids when they've started something new and they say to me that this is hard. It's hard, it's hard starting this new thing. And I say all beginnings are hard. And it's true in everyday life, isn't it? The beginning of marriage is hard. The beginning of, of parenting is hard. The beginning of any new relationship, whether it's a friendship or with a family member, is hard. The beginning of a new job is hard. The beginning of a new semester in school, as some of you are learning, uh, is hard. The beginning of, of a new year is, is hard at times. And today, the beginning of a new book of the Bible well, it might not necessarily be hard, although it might be a little longer than normal because we have to get these introductory matters out of the way, but it happens to be the book of beginnings, the beginning of everything. And yes, even the beginning of Genesis is hard because it's wrought with controversy, unfortunately. So you have uh, several, seven literal 24-hour days versus uh, a more figurative interpretation of the Bible. So you have uh, new earth creationists and old earth creationists. You have uh, intelligent design versus evolution. You have... Uh, History versus myth. Is, is Genesis uh, the history of, of God's people? Or is it just a myth that we've created? And even so, as we'll see as we make our way through the first 11 chapters over the next couple of months, we see that these beginnings are met with their own kind of heart as well. Very specific heart. Because it, it's a constant back and forth concerning uh, one question. How does humanity flourish? How does humanity flourish? And so you'll, you'll see two answers arise throughout Genesis, and throughout the Bible for that matter, but 
We're dealing with Genesis. One is flourishing found in God's glory or trying to find flourishing in your own glory. You'll see that pattern throughout Genesis. Those who pursue God's glory are blessed. And those who pursue their own glory are cursed. It never works the other way around. Because the reality is there is, there is no human flourishing apart from God's glory being manifested in His creation. And so we'll see this theme begin to emerge in three ways in our text today. And this, you can find these, these three points in your worship guide. Three ways. In the beginning, in the creating, and in the resting. In the beginning, in the creating, and in the resting. In the beginning, three of the most famous words ever written. Most people, if you were to say that to them in our world today, would know exactly what you are talking about. So Genesis is the book of beginnings, as these words famously imply. And most, most would agree that that is what Genesis is. It is the book of beginnings, whether they believe it a true account or not. So many, many myths uh, that you've probably read in, in school actually derive their uh, beginning folklore from the book of Genesis. It's just, a, it's just a retelling of the same story. Because everything has to have a beginning. Every story has a beginning. Every, every situation that you're involved in has a beginning. Every person has a beginning. Yet there is still much conflict that arises from this particular beginning. Verse 1 alone is, is pregnant with controversy and scientific scrutiny and theological debates. Professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford, John Lennox, uh, recognized this problem and wrote a book titled Seven Days That Divide the World. It's a short little book. I highly recommend it. And he's primarily dealing with the fact that uh, of those who are quick to dismiss Genesis as a silly, unscientific myth of how the world was made. And so you have these these folks on the outside looking in and saying, that's, that's silly, it, it can't be proved by science, and it's, and it's untrue. But at the same time, unfortunately, these seven days divide the church as well. And I think part of the reason is we get caught up in the wave of controversy. We are, we're so focused on the defense of creation that we miss what it is that Genesis is actually trying to show us. So just as an an aside to some of you, God doesn't need you or me to defend Him. He doesn't need us to defend creation. He doesn't need us to do that. He doesn't need us to try to make it more attractive or more acceptable to the world at large. He doesn't need us to do that. 
Because if we could make it more attractive or more acceptable or more, um, uh, you know, accepted in, in the world of science or whatever particular discipline that is disagreeing with us is, God would have done so. I love what Professor Leon Cass says in his book in the beginning, or the beginning of Wisdom, um, about the opening chapter of Genesis. And this is actually a reflection quote in your worship guide. But he says this, he says, Here, the big cosmological and metaphysical questions about the status of the lofty heavens, the being of the whole, and its ultimate origins and first causes are answered without even being asked. Seemingly disposed of once and for all, And with these matters apparently settled in the beginning, we readers can hereafter devote ourselves instead to more urgent human concerns, the character of human life, and the question of how to live. So Professor Cass is saying, look, these questions have been answered without even being asked. That at the end of the day, as believers in Christ... The the answer is there right before you in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's God who created the heavens and the earth. And I think this frames Genesis well and sets us on the right path as the human concerns are, are framed rightly in light of who God is as creator. Because it's God alone that is responsible for the creation of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Period. And herein lies the real issue then with Genesis 1-1. Because Genesis 1-1 doesn't just tell you that. It's pregnant with, with so much more because it anticipates a fuller revelation given to us in the New Testament. It's pointing us to, to, to where true flourishing of creation lies, and that true, a true, um, true flourishing lies in Christ. Because if you leave this truth out, you lose the entirety of creation. Tristan read for us earlier from Colossians chapter 1, and I'm not sure... If you know your Bible well enough that you know that those, those the Genesis 1 and Colossians 1 uh, are intimately connected. Let me just read those verses for us again from Genesis, or Colossians 1, verses 15 through 16. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, speaking about Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Just pause there. Paul is talking about Genesis chapter 1. Okay? He's referring back to Genesis chapter 1. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. For Christ. So creation is pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is key. He's key not only to our understanding of Genesis, but to our understanding of the entirety of the Bible. So if you primarily read the Bible with a mindset of, what can I get out of this today? 
What, what is, what is, how is this relevant to my life? How does this apply to me? You will miss everything because you will miss the key, Jesus. You won't even begin to understand how the world was created apart from knowing Christ's supremacy, which Colossians 1 points out very specifically. You won't understand the, the weird and sometimes hard texts of Genesis that we will eventually get to if you forget that all of creation declares God's glory. And God's glory is Jesus. You'll stall out at the first genealogy, which comes on us pretty quick in Genesis. You'll quit reading once you hit Leviticus the minute you think the Bible is somehow your self-help manual and not the story of your redemption in Christ. The Dutch theologian Herman Bavink sums it up well when he says this. He says, The world is the product of His will. It is the revelation of His perfections and finds its goal in His glory. Nothing there about you and me. Only about God's glory. And it's in our second point, the creating, where we see this uh, begin to take shape. In verses 3 through 31. Now, I'm not going to try and cover every detail of the actual creation account. I do think that would be helpful, but that's, that's not where I'm going to go today. Um, for one, I don't think uh, or believe that that's the author's primary intent of verses 3 through 31. Because I really believe that verses uh, 3 through 31 or 2 through 31 are a display of the Creator primarily rather than His creation. Remember our call to worship this morning from Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare. What did the heavens declare? The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens don't declare the glory of the heavens. They declare the glory of God. So whatever glory a beautiful sunset produces, that is a glory that is to be accredited to God, not the sunset. So the same is true here in the creating. God's creation points us to Himself. These, these verses paint a picture of a God who, who sovereignly orders the universe by His Word. So all the way through verse 31, the phrase, and God said, is used to communicate that. It's used eight times there in those verses. And God said. So what we learn in Genesis is that the word of the Lord is the powerful, transforming word that was first displayed in creation. It's one of the first things that we learn about God is that he creates the world by his word. So I think this is an important point because it seems as though this is the exact point that we miss as the church. Yet it's the point that everything rests. So one of the unique features of Christianity is that we believe that God simply 
creatively and orderly. You just saw it and you just heard it in, in verses 3 through 31. Orderly created the world by his word alone. That's what we see in those verses. We believe that in order for the world to come into existence, in order for the world to come out of nothing, seemingly, that something supernatural had to take place. Now, I recognize that this is countercultural. And if, there's, if, there, if there was any scientists in the room that were not believers, they, they would say, that's it, that's where we got you right there, is that you believe this bogus myth that uh, the world was created by this, by this being that doesn't even exist. And that's where you're crazy. And that's where you miss it. So I know this is countercultural, uh, and it's, it would be much, much easier if, we, if there was a way that we could make this um, easier for us to live in our current world of science um, if this weren't true. But it is. In his essay, The Laws of Nature, uh, C.S. Lewis helps kind of bring these two together. So if you're ever stumped, at least for me, I always just go to C.S. Lewis and say, what does C.S. Lewis say about this? So C.S. Lewis says this. He says, speaking about creation, speaking about the laws of nature, he says, the smallest event then, if we face the fact that it occurs, leads us to a mystery which lies outside natural science. C.S. Lewis, he's, he's making this argument with a friend um, supposedly in this essay, and, he's, and he's, taking, he's taking his friend's argument, he keeps just going back with it. With the laws of nature, uh, these things were determined in this way, and if this thing happens in this way, then this is going to happen. And so C.S. Lewis just kind of takes his friend back, all the way back to the point where he cannot explain it anymore. So this is what Lewis is getting at. The mystery which lies outside natural science. It is certainly a possible supposition that behind this mystery, some mighty will in life is at work. So what this means is that we are not anti-science as Christians. Otherwise, some of you would have to quit your jobs. It's not an us-versus-them mentality that we need to take as the church. Rather, Genesis allows us to set the boundaries that God, not chance, is responsible for whatever uh, uh, process emerges as the mechanism of creation. And what that means is any mechanism that rules out God is to be rejected. Because whatever we prove or disprove with, with science will, uh, will always find its origin in God's glory. That's the boundary. So we could say it this way. If your scientific discovery, and it, you can include within that your own theological discoveries as well, but if your scientific discovery does not or cannot conclude with God's glory, then that discovery is inconclusive. It's back to the drawing board. This is something else that C.S. Lewis helped me with this week. I spent a lot of time with C.S. Lewis this week, obviously. Um, in another essay he wrote titled Religion in Science, 
And what he points out uh, in this particular essay is that during the, the medieval period, so it's roughly about a thousand years, uh, everyone thought this way. Everyone thought that, whether they believed it or not, that there was a being that created. And that everything came from this particular being. And it's only been in the past 100 years or so that science has uh, been used to dis- disprove Christianity. So again, we have to, we have to see this, that, that it's not an intelligent designer that is the primary problem here. There are many scientists and many theologians today that believe in an old earth creation which means they believe that God created the heavens and the earth. They believe everything about Genesis, but they also believe that maybe this wasn't seven literal days. And they, and they believe the, church, the, the, the earth to be a billion years old. And these are solid believers. You would agree with them on lots of other things. Maybe not that, but lots of other things. And you think, you would think, that would buy uh, creationists some airtime but it doesn't. They're just as crazy as everybody else. And the reason I believe it doesn't is because creation is too intimately connected to the greater reality of Jesus Christ. It's no coincidence that Jesus is called the Word in John chapter 1, verse 1. And then intimately wrapped up in the whole creation narrative in John chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. Listen to these words that John writes for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That, that I believe, is the problem. That Jesus is the one where all of creation is birthed. And to admit that there is a God who has created is to admit that he has done this work through a Savior that is needed for the world. So this is why God can look out over his creation in verse 31 and and not only say it is very good, but could also go on to rest in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which is the third way we see God's glory in human flourishing, in the resting. I just heard this on the radio this week. Um, The DJ on the radio said that there are seven different types of rest that every person needs. Physical, mental, social, sensory, emotional, spiritual, and creative. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on any of those things, nor am I uh, even thinking that's all right in any any shape, form, or fashion. But I say say all that to say... um, or to show that everyone values rest as important. We want rest. We long for rest. We try to uh, make time in our schedule to get as much rest as, as we possibly can. 
And the place where rest is first introduced into the world is here in Genesis 2 by God Himself. We didn't make up rest. We didn't, we didn't make up the weekend. Naps were not our idea. It was God. So God, we could say, created rest. But then you have to ask the question, why? Why did, why did God create rest? Why are, are there three verses dedicated to, to God resting? Because honestly, we could have jumped from chapter 1, verse 31, to chapter 2, verse 4, and we wouldn't miss anything if those three verses just didn't exist. We wouldn't be suspicious at all uh, or think that God had left something out if we just skipped those verses. And then throw into the mix that we have this, this problem of Psalm 121 that tells us very explicitly that God, the God of the universe, neither sleeps nor slumbers. That seems contradictory. A little, a little bit confusing. So why chapter 2, verses 1 through 3? Well, three reasons, I think. First, God's resting demonstrates the completion and perfection of His work. He was done. No more needs to be added or can be added to God's creation, and nothing can be or needs to be taken away. His creation is perfect and right, and true. Second, God rests as a demonstration to you to rest. I love this quote by B.B. Warfield, the theologian B.B. Warfield. He said, uh, speaking specifically about these verses in Genesis, he says, He who needed no rest in the greatness of his condescension, wrested from the work which he had creatively made, that by his example he might woo man to his needed rest. I know we don't use that word woo a lot, but I still love that. That he might woo man to his needed rest. So the God who needs no rest does so to cultivate rest within you and me. So let me, just, let me just let you in on something, just in case you're, you're wondering. You can't do it all. It's impossible. You cannot do it all. You'll never accomplish all that you think you need to accomplish, no matter how many hours you labor in a given week. We, physically, we cannot do that. You will die. If you, if you tried to work beyond your capacity, you'll die. So I, I can guarantee that some of you in this room have plans this afternoon to get some work done, to catch up on a long week or to, or to get ahead uh, to, uh, of a busy week. And you're going to go home and you're going to do that. You might even be thinking about it now. It might be worrying you. And let me just say, if you do this, you're in real danger of negating everything that God has already begun to do in you this day. 
It's like when you go and you just get a, a solid workout in, you run or you go lift weights and you're just thinking, I'm feeling good. And then later that day you eat a dozen donuts and you negate your entire workout. It's the same thing. You negate the entire thing. And let me just tell you, your week will be worse for it, not better. If you choose to take this day of rest and use it to your own advantage and to your own glory and not God's. My former pastor, Dr. George Robertson, uh, he describes it this way in his Bible study on the Ten Commandments, uh, dealing with the Fourth Commandment, the Sabbath day. It's a little long, but I think it's, it's, he says it better than I could say it, so I'll read it. He says, throughout redemptive history, God has to make people rest in his salvation alone. And there are few places in which our resistance to accepting God's rest is more clearly seen than in our resistance to rest on the Sabbath. Here is one day that God gives us to rest our bodies, and we try to squeeze in one more task. And here is one day that God gives us to rest our souls, time to have devotions that our work week has prevented us from doing, and we would rather do anything but. And here is one day in which we may sit or stroll or lie down and just think on God's redemptive activity in our lives, but a thought of an activity that does not accomplish something tangible terrifies us. Terrifies. And the reason you may scoff here and be tempted to say, well, Kevin, you don't know how busy I am. You don't, you don't understand what kind of pressure I'm under. Well, you only work one day a week. How would you even know what this is like? Well, it's because you're right. Not about the one day a week thing. But you're right. Your life is hard. You are under a lot of pressure. And this, this, is, this is life. And therein lies the danger. The things of life can subtly distort our vision of life and begin to take up the space that's vital, vital for the gospel to thrive and grow in. And the reason this is so detrimental is because ultimately... The Sabbath rest of God is pointing you to a greater and better rest only found in Christ, your Savior. Because our basic problem, and which causes so much restlessness, is our sin. That's why Augustine says that we will only find rest when we find it in God alone. The author of Hebrews recognizes this in the New Testament. And he brings all of this together in Hebrews chapter 4. And I just want to read a few verses there because he takes it all the way back to Genesis 1 as well. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 1 through 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, 
For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then verses 9 through 11. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So here the writer connects us to the greater reality, which is rest in Christ. That our true destiny is to find the rest that is found only in God, our eternal rest. So not only does the author of Hebrews point back to God creating in Genesis, he's also acknowledging the truth and reality of God as the beginning of everything, including our rest, including the rest that we find in Jesus. So we're seeing the gospel all the way back in the beginning of everything. The gospel is there. That God is doing way more than creating in Genesis 1 and 2. But putting our flourishing as humans into the context of His glory that is found only in Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, I am thankful... Um, for these words of, of, of Genesis, these beginning words of, of, of your Bible, um, God, that, that remind us um, even more thoroughly and more intimately that it's, that it's, it's, it's way more than you just um, creating the world for us, but that you are creating a means in which we can have a relationship with you through Christ. And so I pray that we would be, be able to build our foundation of, uh, of what it means to flourish as humanity upon the gospel again. To God, I pray that you would do that in us, God. Help us um, to know the reality of our Creator. Help us to know the reality of, of the God who cares about us so much that He would give us rest. Rest in His Son. We pray in His name. Amen.